On this episode of IT Visionaries, we're excited to welcome back Jason Warner, the CTO at GitHub. In his second appearance on the pod, Jason was excited to discuss how there has never been a better time to be a developer or an engineer looking to climb the ranks in this industry. Plus, he took us through some of the trends he's been seeing in the technology world, including how people are working in the cloud and what ways those in the field are affecting change. Enjoy this conversation. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at Mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we are in a different studio, in the GitHub studio in sunny San Francisco. Jason, what's going on? Not much. How are you doing? This is exciting. This is round two. The, uh, the uh, city's so nice they named it twice, and the podcast's so nice that we brought you back. Um, we had such a good time the first time talking all things GitHub and building developers and all that that we wanted to bring you back to talk more about it. You know, for our listeners who don't know, let's let's do a little refresh. So you went from working at McDonald's to getting an internship at IBM. Tell me a little bit about your uh, your background again. That's exactly right. It's a pretty common path, I would say, getting a tech via McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, no, mid nineties, uh, working at McDonald's like most kids do in high school. You need a high school job and. Uh, IBM happened to have uh, an office in town, so they were looking for high school interns. So my auto shop teacher is the one who told me to go apply because I was the only kid in the high school that didn't have a computer who was applying, or a car. It was one of those types of high schools, and I said, I think you could probably use this job. So uh, that's how I ended up there. Fun story, fun fact about this one. I was about to quit McDonald's, and the manager at the time at McDonald's said, why would you want to go take that job at IBM? If you worked hard here three years from now, you might be able to be like a swing shift manager, yeah. or a night manager, making like $29,000 a year. Now, that, granted, that was the 90s. That was a lot of money at the time. But I just couldn't understand the whole, hey, I've got a chance to go IBM, you know, and uh, sell me a night shift at McDonald's. And IBM... You know, not exactly a uh, an unknown company. You know, it's like it's like it's not like you were you know going to some unknown startup or something. Your boss always wants you to stay. Yeah, that's that's just a, a fact of life. Does anyone listen to me who works at GitHub? That is true. Yes, please stay. So, tell me a little bit about what is the latest happenings uh, here at GitHub. So, I'm not sure when you'll be listening to this, but we're right at the cutoff mark for getting things ready for production for GitHub Universe right around the corner, November 13th and 14th. Um, we're going to be releasing some some awesome stuff that we've been in beta for quite some time. The biggest uh, of those things is going to be GitHub Actions with some of the package registry stuff and a lot of our security um, tooling below the surface. Um, those three things together are just an amazing story, and I, we think developers are going to really enjoy the workflow experiences that we give them there. Do you think that this is a loaded question, but do you think that like now is the best time to be a developer? I mean, every day is a better day to be a developer than it was, you know, the day before. So, you know, absolutely, um, maybe except for JavaScript developers, but mostly because there's just so much choice. Even in, you know, there's the things you had to worry about 20 years ago don't exist. 
so much opportunity, so many jobs, so many learning resources. I remember having to get Linux for the first time ever, and I had to go buy one of those orange Sam's books, which I don't think exist anymore, and getting the disks in the back to go install it. And you know, just the access to information alone is has changed the game. So, yeah, best time a lot to be a developer. And so, what's the what's the scope of where GitHub is at right now? I I contend that GitHub is in one of the preeminent positions in software in the entire industry. Um, 40 million registered developers, uh, nearly all the open source in the world lives on GitHub. Most developers in the world know what GitHub is, and if you don't, um, you will. It's just one of those types of companies and one of those types of products. And with that, I think comes a responsibility if you think about caring after software development or developers, and you have to think about that on a day-in, day-out basis. So, you know, I look at this as a privileged position. Um, it gets to serve developers who are making some of the world's most valuable companies or most innovative products. And we all say developers are the people who are making the value in the world today. Well, think about what's going to happen in the next 10 years and we get to enable those folks. As the man in charge of the technology, thinking about those 40 million developers every day, what's the stuff that, uh, to borrow a phrase, keeps you up at night thinking about how to serve them better? Well, you, if I thought about this purely from a business or product perspective, it's who is trying to come for our business. But that is a more of a scarce resource mentality. Totally. And you ha obviously, if you're running a business, you end up thinking about that. However, I usually like to flip it and turn it around and think, what do they need? What do they not have? And where is friction in their life? And if I think about those things, I feel that I will be making better long-term decisions than what I consider to be more narrow-sided short-term decisions, which is who's coming for our business. Because at the end of the day, I think if you, you give developers or give users what they want, they'll stay. And there's very little incentive to move on to other things. So what keeps me up at night is whether or not I understand what's happening in software, whether or not I fully get the trajectory of where communities or languages or frameworks are going, what is happening at the broader macro level, what's happening with IaaS and PaaS and infrastructure as code and all of those various things. Um, because you never want to be the dinosaur in the industry where uh, cloud happened and, and you're still selling servers. Yeah. Do you feel kind of like a sense of responsibility to, you know, a slice of a large slice of technology, like as a as a keeper of the keys for open source, I do. And you know my history: uh, Canonical for a bunch of years running Ubuntu, Heroku, which is mm -hmm. steeped in the open source world as well. And now, now GitHub. It's not maybe per se open source, but just developers themselves. And um, I do feel a sense of responsibility on that. And it has. I think it has less to do with they're producing awesome code, and more that I have such empathy for developers. I grew up and got into software. We talked about going in from McDonald's to IBM, but when I started out, all software engineering at the time was coded as cost center, or yeah. it was, no one valued people who were making software. It was almost like a necessary evil. So in many ways, like this, the rock stars at IBM at the time were the sales folks or the marketing folks, and if you you know look at the last twenty years, that is that's how a lot of the industry was run. But now it's the developers, but the developers are having their moment. But 
everyone's now coming for them. I, you know, you almost want someone who is not after their dollar, but after their just has an understanding for them and say, this is what you actually care about. Let's give you some of those tools. Yeah. And it's funny, like, I think part of the allure of, of the salesperson for so long was my resume doesn't matter. What the only thing that matters is like, I have all the receipts of my quota, what I carried, you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, with, with things like GitHub, it's like the developer kind of has that too now, right? It's like, these are the things that I've worked on. This is, you know, what I've poured my life into. This is what I've also poured like my after hours time into. This is what I've contributed to. Do you kind of sense that there's like a, an ownership level that developers have that like they have more of a voice now in their own career? I think that everyone realizes that the, the game that's being played in modern corporate competition mm -hmm. is a talent game. Yeah. And the only talent that is in such scarce commodity is going to be people who can produce the thing that you ultimately sell. You can't sell, well, Oracle can sell vaporware. Um, they've been doing a really good job of that for many years. <laughs> but most people cannot sell vaporware. You need something to sell. And developers are going to produce that value to sell. And I think everyone knows that it's, it's a game to attract that talent uh, into their company or their organization, their, their project. So... Um, and that's what I think it's the game is at play right now. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about, you know, a lot how like engagement is this new thing that you can kind of start to track. Like engagement wasn't really from like a marketing perspective, from a sales perspective, from a uh, development perspective, wasn't, you know, you didn't always have real time insights. You didn't have real time monitoring. You didn't have all these tools now that you can track like engagement and it's still a little bit binary for engagement, like is someone, you know, doing X or Y or taking this action or another. But now I feel like the next kind of phase of this is like the depth of the engagement, like how much, you know, a developer loves GitHub, how much it's part of their life. How do we look at it? You know, it's, it's kind of the same evolution that you would have, which is an answer to insights. So a binary answer of something is rather useless in and of itself. If you don't understand why the answer is that way. So as an example, in an A-B test, you might be able to tell that this login form is better than this login form, and it converts better. But if you don't go a little bit deeper and ask the questions like, why did that happen? You actually can't translate that learning to another part of the, the product or something else. I, I think it's similar. Like the entire industry is going to go through one of these here soon, which is they'll start asking deeper probing questions, try to synthesize that a little bit more, understand what's happening. Right now, I do think that we have a little bit of surface level understanding of a whole host of things, engagement being one about what matters, why is this important. Right now, I think that many companies or many people might be able to tell you superficially that X, Y, and Z are trends, mm -hmm. but what's happening below the surface? Why are these things happening? Where are those trends going to take us? Yeah. And what are some of those things that you see you know, people working on that's really exciting, like some of those trends? The, um, so from a software perspective, uh, obviously anything in cloud and platforms is kind of fascinating. Um, you see two opposite trends that are happening right now is everyone kind of going cloud for speed reasons, but have hitting a scale. And then you have a commodity uh, price at scale scenario that's happening. And you see it in all the S1s that are being filed. Mm -hmm. um, like, holy crap, they, they're spending a lot of money on cloud, but yeah. that got them to where they are. Now they got to figure out an efficiency ratio and figure out what to do from there. And I think that's a fascinating, fascinating trend. Yeah, we just did an interview with Bob, the CIO of Juniper Networks, and they did a cloud only. We are switching to cloud and there is no turning back. 
And it was something, it was this really interesting conversation. It should be out by now by the time this airs. And he was like, it was like 87 things that they were running that they had to kill. And they were just like working their way down the list. And it was one of these things where it was like all of these legacy things that there is a point of no return. We have passed it. We are doing this cloud only. And I mean, it's a you know, 20-year-old company. That, like it, it, pretty, it was a fascinating conversation of like, that is, you know, for some companies, the only way that they're going to do business in the future. I, I think that the trend is kind of fascinating just to like at a macro level to look at it. There's two other ones that I think are kind of interesting. One is, um, particularly now that we're in San Francisco, there's a San Francisco, Silicon Valley is going to have a moment where they got to figure out what kind of companies are going to build. We just went through a phase where these high growth at all cost uh, companies clearly were not sustainable for a long term. And there's a little bit of existential going on. Like from a company builder perspective, I'm actually quite fascinated to see what the VC community kind of figures out inside that one. Did you just see the post that was on Unity Economics? There's a, a famous investor just wrote a post on Unity Economics and they're like, you can't scale away from Unity Economics. If your Unity Economics are bad, they're bad forever. <laughs> it's, it's like it's I mean, it's fascinating. This this one right here I think is going to change Silicon Valley, San Francisco, the most in the next five years, more than anything else, because you're going to start seeing investors who would just plow cash into a company now start asking about certain things, fundamentals of the business, which require founders to think about things that they never had to think about before earlier. Yeah. And I think that's going to be interesting. Yeah. Well, and I think that that was part of the piece, which was like when you had these, you know, high profit margins from, you know, software companies being built. You could invest in all this other stuff around it, but companies that didn't have those unit economics that kind of pretended like they did or thought that they did or thought that they could scale their way to get there that also added all that other stuff. Like You can't actually do that. You have to figure out another way. Well, I think um, that trend also is going to influence the first one, the cloud at all costs, cloud for everything, or hybrid, or yeah. because they're actually, I mean, all these things are kind of interrelated. Yeah. And the last one I'm tracking is a more personal one, but I am tracking, I'm trying to figure out what is going to happen to software development company leaders in the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. If you look at this from a historical perspective, there was a period of time when most most CEOs came out of the sales ranks. Mm -hmm. Then there was one that phase where it was a lot of marketing and sales folks. Then certain industries went through a CFO mm -hmm. run. Uh, but the, the professional C CEO. Yep. But what has, hasn't happened recently is that there is a lot of people leading companies that are engineer background, but not people who grew up through the engineering ranks. I think that's my premise is that will change. And I think you'll see more CEOs that come out of the engineering ranks who have grown up and run large engineering groups in a 10 or 20 year period. I think that to add on to that, I think that there's a clear there's going to be a clear shift to the people that have the closest relationship to the customer are the people who are going to become CEOs of that company. And for some people, that's the CTO. For some people, it's the CMO. For some people, it's sales. But like, I think that that's going to be the big, you know, shift because if you think about like, if those people are the keeper of the keys on what those insights are going to be and are closest to them and are like pushing product innovations, like, of course they are. And for a lot of companies, especially obviously technology companies, like that person is the CTO. Um, and that's why, you know, on this show, we have so many CTOs and CIOs that spend half their time with customers yeah. now. It's um, it's a, one of the bigger changes I've seen in the 
CTO landscape probably over the last 10 or 15 years is how much time they're outside the lab versus inside yeah. the lab. And it's why I think that it's going to, particularly for high technology companies, you'll start to see that trend. I'll be interested to see if it actually plays out that way because I think that the way everything is on the scale of time, but the way current boards are constructed or current people want to gravitate towards certain things, they want a persona typically uh, in those roles. We'll see if we'll see if any of these things actually play out. So for our listeners that are in kind of that position, the CIO, CTO position that are their dream is to be a CEO someday. What do you think? Um, you know, what's Jason's advice? Uh, not that I've been a CEO myself, but um, you know, one day. But I would say that the, to your point about uh, customers, go talk to customers, understand customers, build the customer empathy, be good in front of customers. All of those. I think customers are critically important to that role. Employees as well. I mean, basically, if you think about your audience, there's two that are going to very much matter in that role: the external world and the internal world. Your employees have to follow. A CEO, they've got to have confidence in you. You've got to know how to connect with your internal employees, particularly through layers and, you know, be able to articulate vision and strategy. And your customers have to believe in you to, to give you money. The critical skill I think that is needed in those scenarios is communication is super important in those, very crisp, clear, written communication, good presence when it comes to things like this or on stage. But even more, what I think is important is the ability to storytell and the ability to take abstract concepts and make them real and to craft a, a narrative around it. And now many, many CEOs might have people for that, but if you cannot do that, it's very unlikely that you will be a CEO. Yeah, and I think it's about you know making the complex simple. And I, and I ultimately, it seems to me like the people who are, and I know we're naming like 50 different things, but like you said, are a little bit paranoid about where technology is going and staying super close to innovation. And whether that's, you do that through internal things that you create, or whether you do that through the startup ecosystem or whatever it is, you have to stay super abreast of that. And that's challenging when you're you know, focusing inside the house. This is a, a random aside, but the former CEO of ESPN was on an interview with Bill Simmons and he was talking about how the reason why he felt a little out of touch by the end of his tenure as CEO was that he only spent every waking second watching ESPN shows. Because he was like, these are my people. Like, they're making this and I want to watch all that stuff. But you lose sight of, like, everything else. I kind of feel like that's a great analogy for technology. It's like, if you're only ever focusing on the innovation that's happening inside the company and not outside it, you, you kind of have to be purposeful to look at that stuff. The it's, it's a percentage of time play, in my opinion, which is some percentage of your time should be partitioned for all of those activities. That's why it's important for CTOs and CIOs to get out and talk to customers. And it's not to push your product. If you're going to talk to customers to push your product, you're not learning, you're selling. Yeah. You should go and ask them questions. What are your challenges? What are you seeing? What are we not doing as a as valuable feedback to get for a product? You know, if you're going to talk to some of the largest telecoms in the world and you're pushing your product as opposed to seeing what their challenges and roadmaps look like, it's the wrong focus. As these leaders are you know looking for technology, looking for these things. The other crucially important part, which every leader always talks about, is finding talent for their own team to hire for the things that they can't do themselves. To you know add the the real rock stars out there. Obviously, you know GitHub is a platform that can help you do that. 
that can help you, you know, identify that talent. But clearly we have a shortage, right? You know, if there's 40 million people on GitHub now, how many people do we need on there in the future? I know we talked about this a little bit in the previous episode, but like, what is the delta here that we need to make up? It's hard to say how many millions of people should be developing software, but I, I, I personally think one, the notion of what software development is will change. I think we even talked about this in the last podcast, but if you're manipulating inputs and outputs, I think that is developing at this point. You know, uh, the Excel spreadsheet folks that you've seen, like mm-hmm. these, these wizards with Excel and what they can do, I mean, that's pretty amazing, you know? Yeah. The no-code, low-code movement that's happening right now, you know, they're gonna be developing some pretty amazing things. And that's the point of abstractions. The, all of these things exist to get more people developing or releasing stuff. How many people do we have to have in the world? More is really the only answer I know is we need more. We need a lot more because what we have proven is that if we have software developers focusing on things, more value is created, more things that we can focus on. Now, my one hope is that we would create more, not to create more, throw, what is it, what is it, uh, throw sheep at people on the internet type of thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm not sure if that was an actual saying or if I just made that up on the spot, but I'd rather not have people do frivolous things, but that will happen. But the point of these things from a social and societal perspective is that the more things that you can abstract away, the more time you should be able to spend on hard, really sophisticated problems. But if you're only you know mucking around with low-level bits, you can't think about the higher-order bits. I would hope that we have more people so we can focus on some of those things. So how do you think about doing that? Well, you know, there's I, I talk about this quite a bit uh, internally when we think about GitHub's long-term horizon. But there's a zero to one and a one to two problem. Zero to one is creating more software developers, and one to two is making software developers better or have them learn new skills. We have a lot of people focusing on the zero to one right now in in boot camps and academies and things of that nature, though I think that GitHub should play a role in that as well, and Microsoft possibly as as well, but GitHub should. We have all the open source code. We can do it in a way that's very interesting and and unique. And then in the course of a couple of years, I want to focus on, on some aspect of creating software developers. But then also, I I don't think very many people are actually focused on the one to two, Mm -hmm. which is taking someone who has X set of skills and giving them Y set of skills or helping them learn or or advance in their career or advance in their understanding of of certain things. And that is actually probably where a lot of the advancement is going to come. It's learning new skills or translating your understanding of how to manipulate inputs and outputs in Excel and applying it to Airtable or... Uh, databases or creating no-code, low-code apps that are going to do that sort of thing. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> this is going to sound flippant, but it's like almost like there was a system where you'd get a bachelor's level of education in something, and then you could get a master's level. And it's like for, for web development, it's now such that neither of those two things actually solve what we need, but you need kind of that entry level getting from zero to one. But you're kind of right. It's like the master's level equivalent of upskilling people that really, I mean, that job is pretty much done by companies, right? That's done in-house. It it is. And if you think about um, this from a perspective that might seem a little strange, but over the last five or 10 years, there's been a lot of energy and effort to bring diverse people into companies. And we say, hey, we got to create more access to them, um, to, to companies for a lot of people in the industry and the world. Once they got through the door, it's almost like the, the job stopped. But that's the zero to one, the one to two problem for software developers in general. It's like you can create more software developers, but then you have to upskill them too. So if you're thinking of this as an employee engagement or um, recruiting, your job doesn't stop once someone accepts your job. The, 
the job continues and actually gets harder when it comes to helping them advance in their career, making them feel welcomed, uh, employee engagement, how satisfied are they in their on their on their job day in, day out. And now that's only recently become a trend where you have internal employee engagement as well. But if you think about it, it's similar, it's kind of the same problem. Too many people focus on the first part and once they get to a step, eh, my job here is done. Well, I think, you know, if you're a non-technical company, if you're a financial institution or whatever it is, uh, or a manufacturer of some kind, and, you know, you're trying to build that skill set, that's really hard, right? Imagine (laughs) being a hedge fund right now and you realize that the quants in the back room are basically the only thing you need to run. Yeah. And you have no idea what they do. Yep. And you're trying to figure out how to keep them. So you're just plowing money at them right now. Yes, they're going to be motivated by money, but are they learning? Are they advancing? You have no idea how to do that. So I have a little bit of sympathy for the people in that industry, only a little bit because I can only have so much sympathy for people sitting on <laughs> yachts all day. Yeah, but uh, no, but I think, it, but it's any, it's every industry, it's every industry that needs to build, you know, the technology muscles that they don't have. I mean, you know, in the in the conversations of like, how do we build, you know, a more robust data team? How do we build, you know, building these internal teams? Like, okay, like you said, okay, well, we got the team. We, you know, we hired the four, you know, the four people we needed. Then what? Who's going to coach them up? Because as the CIO, you're like, well, I don't necessarily, I'm not a subject matter expert in, you know, all things, you know, what, what those people are working on. So like who levels them up, right? I go back to sports a lot of these things. And I think that, for whatever reason, I really like sports because seasons have beginnings and ends. Mm, yeah. And you can actually tell a lot by what happens in, in season, off season. It's, it's weird. It's like there's boundaries. Yeah. Companies don't have these things. They have earnings calls, but there's no like, well, we're going to bring in a new CEO for the 2020 Microsoft season and see how they do. Yeah. In sports, you have positional coaches. They're experts in their field in that particular positional you know, position and the wide receivers coach understands the ins and outs of that position. And they also understand the broad scheme of things. I think we could do better and think about that in our own industry. In engineering, we tend to, you're an infrastructure expert, you're a data expert, you're an application developer expert, architecture expert, but we could still do more to make sure that that they're getting supported that way. So if you have, um, you know, your, your magic wand over the next five years to figure out how we can take more software developers from zero to one and then also from one to two. And specifically, we're talking like outside San Francisco. You know, we're sitting in San Francisco right now, but a lot of this opportunity clearly is going to be outside of here. What, what's, your, uh, what's your magic wand that you would want to see happen? I think that it, if I were to focus on any one thing, I'd probably say the one to two problem because I think that's a gap. Yeah. So there's a bigger opportunity to affect change there because I think there's enough people that can focus on the zero to one side of it. I'd focus on the one to two. The the magic wand moment would come obviously when someone who had no notion of software development or the uh, opportunity that could present could then obviously get a job or have no need for a job because they have some self-sustaining business at some point. Um, The magic wand would be that people know that that path exists Mm -hmm. and could exist. And I think that in San Francisco, obviously everyone knows that's why they're here. They're after their own gold gold rush. But imagine being in the middle of nowhere, somewhere, some farm farm country, United States, or somewhere else outside the world. You might not even know that this is a possibility. And you want to just present that as an option for people and show so the awareness that the industry exists. Let's talk 
the biggest mistake you've ever made? Uh, you wrote a post about this. It's it pretty popular. Why'd you write it? What'd you learn? Growing as a leader, you end up sharing a lot of the same stories over and over again. And that was, when I wrote it, at the time I wrote it, that was one of the, the bigger mistakes I ever made. And, and um, it, it caused me to un, you know, self-reflect a lot about what I wanted to be and what I wanted to do and how I was going to do it. For those who haven't read the post, the biggest mistake I ever made was essentially boiled down to try, keeping somebody on the team who was a superstar, quote unquote, developer, but was causing the team itself or, to down level, essentially. Mm -hmm based upon behaviors or other things. And I thought at the time that if I coached this person enough or worked with this person enough, I could help them understand or get to a point, I thought I could do, you know, basically thread the needle on both of those things. Maybe if I was a, a better manager, I could have. But I think that ultimately I was not caring after the whole and trying to optimize for an individual. And my biggest mistake was doing that for too long. And it caused me to have two two types of um, sayings. I, I, I've used this liberally inside of GitHub, but um, not outside yet, which is um, sometimes you have to be a psychologist as a manager and sometimes you have to be a sociologist. And the point being that between those two is that if you're sitting across from an individual, yes, you should be absolutely empathetic and thinking about that individual and, and, and working with them. But your job, if you're an executive, is to be a sociologist 90, 95% of the time. You're thinking about the, the, after the whole of the company or the organization or, or all of those things. And the balance of being an executive is, is the balance of those two things and understanding when you should employ one, one hat versus the other. So in this scenario, I feel that I actually held back the company and the team by, by optimizing for one individual and trying to, quote unquote, help them or fix them or whatever there be. And... Um, it was an embarrassing failure. Do you think that because you have so much, because like technology leaders have so much invested in developers, it's like similar to, you know, like a, a rockstar sales rep or something like that, where they have so much of an investment in this person that you're like the switching costs alone sound like it's almost an impossible thing. Like I, I have to find a new, you know, diamond in the rough. Like I have no idea how I'm going to do that. I think, um, I definitely think that plays a role. In my particular case, it had less to do with this person was so talented um, and more to do with, I knew how talented they were and I, I wanted to help them understand that a couple of things were holding them back. Mm. And it was almost like you're trying to get them to understand that they had a, a certain problem. And you're like, well, you know, if only and in this particular case, it just wasn't working. And who knows if this person, I don't, I have not stayed close to this person. I don't know if they've gone on and had their own learnings or whatnot, but I definitely think that there is a switching cost that happens. Here's where I think the switching cost is the highest. It's maybe not with individual developers, maybe on a small team, that'd be true, but at a larger organization, I don't think that's the case. I think that um, switching cost has to do with um, executives a lot. Which is why you see executives hang on way past when they're probably useful for the company anymore because you don't know downstream effects. How many people are loyal to that person? What's going to happen? You know, I have to go find somebody. They're going to need six months to ramp up. They're going to need another six months to get their structure in place. What if I just use this person at a 70% capacity that I'm getting out of them right now that's better than the switching costs? Let's get into some more story time. What was the craziest section of time shipping something that 
you didn't think you were going to make on time? Um, two stories come to mind two times about that. So one is here at GitHub. Um, it was the first time that we announced GitHub Actions on stage. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why is, um, and because I can tell a story now, because everyone knows we got acquired by Microsoft, is we were developing something slightly different. GitHub Actions was phase two of this mm. thing on a, on a three to four year journey. But GitHub Actions was going to be phase two. But what happened is we were successful in showcasing this to the large clouds, and we got an acquisition offer, and Microsoft acquired us. But the strategy shifted now because of what we were trying to do wouldn't work now that we were going to be part of Microsoft, we had to accelerate the other plans. So we got everyone in a room. We said, okay, great job. <laughs> we're getting acquired. However, we can't stand on stage and announce what we are going to announce. It just won't work anymore. Yeah. Because the narrative has changed. It's going to be about Microsoft. It's going to be about all of the competitors now. We have to get to this one. Can we do it? And one of the engineers in the room said, why are we even having this discussion? Get out of our way. And you know, the magic happened, and we were able to get to get, um, GitHub Actions v1 for last universe. And you know, I'm eternally grateful to that team because of what they ended up doing and how they ended up doing it. And it was just amazing to see them work that way. And the other story was at a startup company in Phoenix, we were trying to go from an old legacy founder-developed uh, cold fusion MySQL server, um, MS SQL server-based application, and trying to migrate it fully to Java and Oracle in um, some ridiculous amount of time to get it in front of a, a very large financial institution who would only ever take a Java Oracle um, solution, and that's what we wanted to make our new stack um, anyway. But it was one of those everyone nights and weekends try to get this thing done. And um, the insane amount of creative workaround tax type of thing that went into getting that done in about a 45-day period wow. were, was amazing. And obviously, there were some bugs afterwards. But just Cold Fusion to Java, MS SQL with 150 store procedures to Oracle, I mean, it was an insane transition. Since you're about to you know, talk about it here, by the time this is live, it should be, uh, should be out there. Can you share a little bit more about GitHub Actions? Sure. So um, GitHub Actions is, the way I, I try to describe GitHub Actions is, it's all about helping developers go from their machine to running code in production, all the way through. The, the, the idea is that it's a workflow tool that takes your code from GitHub and builds it, packs it, deploys it, and puts it out running in production for you. We just took a unique spin on it, um, on workflows, and we did it in a way that we thought was more appropriate for software development in 2020. It's not, uh, it's not rooted in the 80s, not rooted in the 90s, or even in the early 2000s. Well, we wanted to exist in the world. Mm -hmm. And so far, the reception's been kind of amazing. We're pretty happy with it. Uh, and uh, the feedback we've gotten is, great, but can you now go and do all these other things in the same <laughs> style? Which is, OK, cool. That's good feedback. It's one of those things like when, when people are complaining about something or, or want an additional thing, you're like, uh, they definitely like it. Because uh, if they didn't like it, they just wouldn't say anything. Yeah, the, 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 the reception of this has been amazing. Even the original V1 knocked people's socks off. V2, when we introduced with uh, CI embedded in it, and then we're going to bring in all of our security features and the package registry as well. If you understand software development inside and out and you kind of squint a little bit, you'll understand exactly where we're going in the next two years on this. 
aside from all the cool things that your team is working on at GitHub, what are you excited about for you know technology going forward? What are any passion projects or things that you're looking at? Uh, yeah, so um, I think you know similar to what GitHub Actions was about. Um, I think about a couple of different things, and I, I now I'm kind of getting worked up about one other space. The local development experience of developers' machines was something that we kind of focused on for a little while. It's gotten a lot better over the last couple of years, GitHub Actions being something that helps people get their code from GitHub repo to running in production. The next phase that I, I'm thinking about now is what happens to operating that code in production? Right now, it's, again, that's a little bit of a nascent industry. There's a lot of in, interesting uh, startups that are kind of emerging in that space. You've got you know incident management, you've got monitoring and alerting, you've got error reporting, all these different things. But there's not a very cohesive story at the moment on that one. And so it's you're a little bit of uh, unfederated territory. What could we do? How do we make that better? You know, being on call right now is kind of a scary proposition. So how do we make all of those things better? How do we make operating code in production at scale better? What about just personally, professionally? What what are you excited about going on? What do you, what are you doing for fun these days? Ah, uh, fun. Um, what is that? <laughs> no, um, uh, Personally, my kids are at really fun ages, five, eight, and 12. Oh, that's fun. Basically, if I have any downtime, it is literally just hanging out with them because the five-year-old says the funniest things. She's super into Minecraft, and she found out that you can ask whatever device you're using to tell you a Minecraft audiobook. There's this, apparently <laughs> this is a thing now. So now she's just coming up with all these Minecraft stories on her own and trying to talk to me about them. So you know how it is, kids say the darndest things type yeah. of territory. I love doing through that. I kind of, uh, on, a, on a personal level, I kind of neglected the uh, personal health front for a couple of years while doing the early stage of GitHub for the last two or so. Sure. Got a, I'm on the wrong side of 40. <laughs> Got to make sure that the wrong side of 40 looks a little bit more like the right side of, of 40 than not. <laughs> so um, trying to get back into shape a little bit, work out a little bit more, sleep a little bit more, that type of deal. And I would like to write more than I yeah. have in the last couple of years since taking the GitHub job. I've done a lot of internal writing to GitHub and not a lot of external. I'd like to do that a little bit more. GitHub is kind of known for some cool parties. You have an incredible space here. For listeners that don't know, it's this incredible space, high ceilings and all this stuff. Do you have a favorite of the GitHub parties over the years? Oh, very clearly the acquisition close party. I guess, yeah. No. I mean, that was that's a no-brainer, so I can't pick that one, but that one is by far my favorite. Everyone was super, super happy and obviously energized and a lot of momentum that kind of went into that one. The um, other one that I think about was we had an internal all hands. Was, uh, if I remember correctly, it was the Pride Party in 2017 that we did. And the reason why that was fun is my first GitHub event here after taking the job. And there was balloons everywhere. Um, there was people doing karaoke. There was some lip syncing. There was somebody brought in um, pretzel stand, I think it was, or one of the other pretzels. But it was just kind of showing you what GitHub was about. We have this bar downstairs. It's not my favorite place in the, in the building. I'm just not a big fan of the bar aspect of this thing. But interestingly, that was the least used thing at that party. <laughs> and it was kind of funny because I was watching it. Like, how much is this going to impact what this party is going on? It wasn't about that. It was about people getting together and kind of um, having fun, you know, with a DJ, and then over in the other corner, people playing board games. Yeah. It's kind of GitHub in a nutshell. Okay, let's do some lightning round questions before we get out of here. 
lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Platform. You go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more about the lightning fast customer experience. Lightning round questions. Jason, are you ready? Absolutely. Number one, what is your favorite sports team? New York Yankees. Oh, geez. Oh, I'm going to take that back uh, because that will immediately divide people. Penn State and the Lions. <laughs> there you go. Um, do you have a favorite show uh, you're watching or, or something, uh, maybe a podcast you're listening to? I don't watch a lot of TV. Um, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, so uh, interestingly. So um, my son, he's 12 now. He's autistic, but he is super into comic books, which I'm mm -hmm. a big fan of. So all the Marvel movies, he just recently got into them. So we have a, a new deal, which is Saturday mornings, I'll wake up early and because he always gets up at six o'clock and I'll go downstairs with him and we'll watch a movie before mommy gets up. And I know she's not listening, so she won't figure this out. <laughs> um, so we get to watch a movie on Saturday mornings with him. Oh, I love that. That's great. So where, where are you at in the in the series now? Uh, we're third time through oh, the Marvel time. Universe. He just keeps going. <laughs> As he's, he's slowly introduced um, the DC Universe now. I just watched Aquaman recently, and maybe because I'm biased because Jason Momoa is awesome, but I really didn't think it was that bad. People were like, so, like Momoa is just great, and he's hilarious, so I'm here for it. Did you ever hear the story of uh, he how he got the, the scar on no. his eye? It's uh, yeah, it's like in a it's like in a bar fight, somebody like broke a bottle on his head. That's so Jason Momoa. No, I know. I like this guy. It's like too on brand. Yeah, I know. But that's what, and it was like, yeah, it was like this crazy thing. But I don't think I think it was just some guy was like he like heckling or something. I could be getting this wrong, but anyways, um, shout out to Jason if you're listening. We definitely want you on the show. Um, speaking of Jasons that we love having on the show, thanks so much for hanging out. This has been awesome. Thanks for having me again. This is great. Any uh, final stuff to plug? Anything uh, our listeners should check out? On uh, November 23rd, Penn State plays Ohio State, so they need to win. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely always against Ohio State. So <laughs> sorry, Ohio State fans. All right, see you later. Thanks. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.